Today's reading is Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. We have commanded your, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently, O oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Tucson. Oh, you guys are much more responsive than Tempe. This is great. So uh, I have to be honest. I, I've had a couple opportunities to preach up in Tempe, and if anyone's had an opportunity to visit there, um, we have a stage that's kind of elevated, and there's stairs that you walk up to get to the stage. And one of my fears is that in walking up to the stage, I'm going to fall on the stairs. So Dave kind of up the ante here, and I get to preach from stairs. So my prayer all morning is like, God, don't let me fall off the stairs. That would be super embarrassing. So if I do, uh, just bear with me. We'll trust that that's the spirit moving, and we'll just roll with it. I'll try to do like a somersault. I've been watching the Summer Olympics, so I feel inspired. Uh, in all seriousness, guys, I really, really, really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I appreciate Dave inviting me down here to share with you guys. I love Redemption Tucson. Um, the, the few of you that I know, you guys are amazing people. It's so cool to be part of redemption and to be able to see through Facebook, social media, and in conversations what you guys are doing to engage your community with the gospel. It's an encouragement. Um, it's exciting to see. It's a privilege to watch and to serve alongside you guys. So I'm very thankful to be here. Um, I'm not going to do any of the ASU, U of A jokes because I didn't go to either school. So <laughs> it, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Uh, I actually, I went to school. It's a world-renowned school that probably all of you have heard it's called uh, Briarcrest Bible College. Anyone, anyone, one guy that I went to school with has heard of it. Yeah, uh, there's no reason that you should know that school. It's in Saskatchewan, Canada. So picture the flattest stretch of the 10 between Tucson and Tempe, but without the mountains that you can see on the horizon. And imagine how hot it gets on the hottest day, but turn that into cold. That's where I went to school, okay? So I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, Northern California, and you know, it's pretty mild weather there. And I had like a concept of snow, like I knew what the idea of snow was. Um, I think I had experienced it once for about five minutes, and that was it. And, and then I went to school in Canada, and I learned that snow is not just the idea of snow, right? Like there's really cool, exciting snow when snow falls down where you are, and like everything's really still right? And it's quiet, and it's peaceful, and it's very beautiful. And then there's other kinds of snow. There's snow that blows in because you go to school in the plains, and so it blows from the next province over, and it's dirty, and it's more like blowing ice that hurts, and it's not like the fun, like, Disney movie snow that you would imagine. And then there's where I went to school, where it's so cold that, like, Everything freezes, and, and snow just kind of turns into hard clumps of ice that make you fall down whenever you try to walk outside. It's not just snow, right? There's nuances of snow, and when you live in a climate where there's lots of snow, you understand these things. 
For me growing up, I just had snow. I didn't get what black ice and, and, and regular ice and falling snow and snow bank, all of these nuances. And so as I've looked into this concept of, of snow in preparation for Psalm 119, one of the things I found is that in, in native Eskimo languages, there's over, some scholars say over 90, some say hundreds of different words for snow because of the familiarity with snow that they have. So we're gonna look at Psalm 119 today. And Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible. It has the most verses. Thanks, Dave, I appreciate it. Um, I promise we'll be done before 8 p.m., I promise. There's only 176 verses to get through, but one of the things that we'll notice is this Psalm talks about God's word. And it talks about God's word in a very familiar way. And so if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and take it out. Take out your Bibles, turn to Psalm 119. If you don't, then raise your hand and we have copies of the Bible for you. I understand that we have English and Espanol versions of the Bible if you need those. So go ahead and raise your hand and we'll get those Bibles to you. But we'll be looking at Psalm 119 today. A few things at the outset, we have to understand, I'm sure you guys have talked about throughout this series of the Psalms, that the Psalms are written as poetry, They're written as prayers, as, as praise. And so this particular Psalm is actually an acrostic. And so each stanza starts with the same letter and it goes through the entire Hebrew alphabet. All 22 stanzas of the Psalm relate to one of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, further, there's, there's eight lines in each stanza, and one Hebrew scholar says, we know in, in Hebrew thought that the number seven is a number of completion. And so the number eight is more than that. It, it's more, it, it um, has connotations of being more than that which can be seen by, in the inherent constraints of the physical world. It's supernatural, in other words. So the psalmist has crafted this poem in which almost every single one of the 176 verses talks about God's word, why we should rely on God's word, the benefits of God's word, what God's word means. Imagine the intimacy with which you would have to understand a topic to be able to write an acrostic poem using every letter eight lines, each one starting with that letter, and it wouldn't get boring. So my goal today, as I've heard this, this text preach in different settings, it's typically one of these sermons, right? You know where it's gonna go. Look how great the Bible is. You don't read the Bible enough. Therefore, you should read your Bible more. And we all leave with this vague sense of guilt and shame and like, gosh, yeah, man, I really should read my Bible more. We get that. For the most part, people that are familiar with the Bible get that we should read it more. I've been on staff for, uh, since the start of the year, and, and not once have I had somebody come to, me, come to me and say, well, you know what my big problem in life is? I just read the Bible too much. <laughs> like we, we intuitively kind of know this, right? Even people that aren't familiar with the Bible are intrigued by it. Think about a few years back, the Da Vinci Code movies, right? People are fascinated by the Bible. So my goal is not to guilt you into reading the Bible more. My goal is to give you a, a, large, uh, a large view of this chapter, uh, the 30,000 foot view, right? So think about the familiarity, the things that you notice in your neighborhood as you walk through your neighborhood. You don't notice the same things as you drive. You notice much different things as you fly. Today we're gonna fly, 
We're going to fly through Psalm 119. So we, we talked a little bit about the structure, right? We understand it's an acrostic poem. We understand each, each stanza, each line of each stanza starts with the same letter all, through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the topic is God's word. We're going to start to dive into some of the nuance, and really what we want to do is, is just to get a taste. So, here's my goal. I want to give you a restaurant review of Psalm 119. Think about your favorite restaurant. Think about your favorite thing to order from your favorite restaurant. How would you describe that to people? So for me, if any of you travel to San Francisco you have to go to this restaurant called House of Nanking. It's a Chinese restaurant, and my friend introduced me to it, and it was a very strange experience. Uh, we were walking down Pine Street, and just picture middle of San Francisco, tall buildings, lots of traffic, very eclectic group of people that you would experience. Uh, and so we walk into this kind of hole-in-the-wall restaurant. It has a small sign out front, and we sit down. The owner of the restaurant comes up and says, are you hungry? And my friend says, yes, and then he leaves. <laughs> we don't see a menu one time. I have no idea what's going to happen. This, this man just left. As I start to look around, I notice there are no decorations in this restaurant. There's no pictures. There's no little fake plants. There's no candles, nothing. There's just frames around the ceiling. And each frame holds a different award that they've won. Different culinary awards, best Chinese food in San Francisco, on and on and on. We hear some rustling in the kitchen and pretty soon plates start being delivered to our table, family style, and, and, and we're using our chopsticks and, and we're eating and most of the food, I could not tell you what it is, but I can tell you it is the best Chinese food I've ever had in my life. Now, this theory has been tested. I have friends who have done uh, mission work in China, and they've come back to California, and I've sent them to this restaurant, and they say, yeah, this is authentic, and this is better than I've had in China. This is literally the best restaurant. The smells as soon as you walk in are amazing. They have a menu that you can choose from, but most people don't do that because they understand that the chef daily goes down to the market and whatever food is, is most fresh, that's what he uses to prepare the ingredients. Anyone mouth-watering right now? Like getting a little, like, man, I should have eaten breakfast before I came to church. Yeah. <laughs> that's what we do when we talk about restaurants that we love. This is what the psalmist is doing as he's describing God's word. He wants to whet our appetite. Not so we feel this sense of guilt and shame, but so that we can see how good God's word is to and for us. So some of the descriptions that he uses here in referring to God's word, he, he, there's nuance like we talked about with the snow. So he talks about the law. When he talks about the law, he's referring to the Torah, the, an individual law or the body of laws that God has given his people. Think of these as instructions or, or teachings, not necessarily laws in the sense that we would consider laws, but more instruction or teaching. He also refers to God's testimonies. This is what God has witnessed to and has testified to be his will. What God has said will happen and it comes to be. So when God tells Abraham, I will give you a, a, a 
a space, a land for your family. I will bless your family so that you may bless all families on earth. These types of things that God has said to be his will and that they will come to pass. Those are his testimonies. The precepts, precepts is what God has appointed to be done or think of an investigator's conclusion. Uh, one way I like to talk about this is old man wisdom, right? Not to insult anyone, but people who have lived more life than me and they have experienced things and said, this is what's best. This is how you ought to do things. It's wisdom. The psalmist goes on. He talks about statutes, God's statutes. This is what the divine lawgiver has written in stone. This is what God has said to be good and what God has said to be sin, and it doesn't change. The commandments are those things which God has commanded. That's it. The rules are what God has judged to be right so that we can discern. When we say all of life is all for Jesus, we need a framework with which to discern how we interact with culture. The Bible doesn't talk about cars. Is it sinful to drive a car? No. But the, God, the Bible gives us a framework through which to view life so that we know how to steward our cars, our money, our vocation, all of these different aspects of culture faithfully. And finally, his word. This is what God has spoken. This is what God has spoken to his people, what we know to be true. So we've talked about the framework, we've talked about some of the structure and some of these words used, but we don't want to leave Scripture as this instruction manual or, or a blueprint. Scripture is much more than that. And N.T. Wright has a, a great quote where he talks about these concepts. He talks about how we engage Scripture. Scripture is not just used to prove a point or for a debate or as a textbook. But he goes on to, to describe Scripture as more than that. He says this, Scripture has never, in any major part of the Christian church, been simply a book to be referenced when certain questions are to be discussed. From the very beginning, it has been given a key place in the church's worshiping life, indicating that it has been understood not only as part of the church's thinking, but also as a part of the church's praise and prayer. Scripture was given to us, yes, to inform how we think about things, how we think about life, but also how we praise, how we pray, how we express gratitude. And so if you're like me, I was taught that every day, 30 minutes a day, you go to a quiet place and you open your Bible. Sometimes we would do like Bible roulette. Have you done this where, okay, God, just lead me and you flip open and plop your finger down and you read a verse and, oh, all right, this is what it is. This is what God wants me to know. Um, true story, I, I had a friend who had broken up with his girlfriend and was debating on whether or not he should get back with her. And so he went and he read the book of Philemon which if you know, Paul is writing about a runaway slave, this letter that the slave owner should take the slave back. And so he thought, oh yeah, my girlfriend's a slave, a runaway slave, and I should just <laughs> take her back. You guys can see this is flawed thinking, right? I'm not saying anyone should go and read Philemon and develop this sort of exegesis from it, right? Okay, we, we can see how scripture can be misused. But we can also see how scripture, maybe I'm alone in this, can just turn into some boring, routine thing. We have this personal devotion time where we're in our room and we read the Bible and hope we don't fall asleep and 
pray a little bit, and maybe if we're feeling really ambitious, we'll journal a little bit for the day. There's nothing wrong with reading the Bible on your own. There's nothing wrong with praying and, and with journaling, but I think if we look at what we're doing, it doesn't really look like what we see in the psalm. Robert Gelinas describes it like this, right? He says, God has created everything. Before we know anything about God, we know that he's creator. God is the creator, and he has created us in his image. So if God's the creator, we're created in his image, then by logic, we should be creative. So if we're thinking of spending this time with the most creative being that has ever existed, that's beyond the scope of the universe, that has created the, the universe, what would that look like? He says this, why do prayer and Bible reading often feel more like duty than delight? Could it be the way we approach our time with God? For years, the time I spent with God could be reduced to two words, quiet time. How exciting does that sound? <laughs> he goes on to say this, are those the words you would use for spending time with the most creative being in the universe? Think about somebody creative, somebody like a Robin Williams a Jim Carrey, a Cedric the Entertainer. Would a 30-minute session with them be quiet? Imagine you spend 30 minutes with somebody like John Coltrane or Miles Davis, Carlos Santana. What would that sound like? Imagine spending 30 minutes with Gordon Ramsay, Julia Childs, some other famous chef that I'm just not in that world, so I don't know what their name would be. <laughs> What would it smell like? We tend to engage scriptures and by extension engage God in a very narrow, almost robotic sense where we read words on a page and we download our prayers to some far off server and expect that that's it. L listen to the way that, that the psalmist describes how he engages God just with his body, the imagery of his body. He says he walks in the law, runs in the commandments, stores the word in his heart. He clings to God's testimonies. I, I have this picture in my mind of a rock climber clinging to the side of the mountain. Imagine if we did that with God's testimonies. He rises before the dawn to encounter God's word. His flesh trembles at God's word. It's not a quiet Robot downloading thoughts. This is engaging God with his whole body. His eyes are fixed upon the commandments. His eyes are seeking God's word with his whole heart. His eyes are shedding tears because God's law is not obeyed. His mind meditates, delights, and remembers God's word. With his mouth, his lips declare the goodness of God's word. He speaks of God's testimonies. He says, your statutes are my songs and I will sing of your word. This is creative. This is much more than a quiet 30 minutes in my bedroom before I start my day. What would this look like in our lives? Imagine how this could change how we interact with God if we begin to expand and broaden our view of God's word, of who God is, and of how we interact with him. 
If instead of journaling, if, if you're artistic, you drew your prayers to God. You wrote your prayers as songs or as poems. Imagine trying to summarize what you read through haiku. For some of you, I, I, so as I preach, I think of like different people. I think of my dad who like builds things and shoots things. He'd be like, yeah, that's really weird. I'm not going to write a haiku. So, if that's not the way in which you are creative, imagine building something. Building a structure that would communicate the message of Genesis chapter 12, where God promises that he will bless his people so that they would bless all peoples of the earth. We don't have to simply engage God through reading a passage and writing a journal, but we can expand and broaden our view. I love driving into Tucson and seeing some of the street art on the sides of the buildings. Imagine we, we talk about the, the biblical narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What would that look like in an alley on the streets of Tucson? Proclaiming the true story of the whole world, that God created everything good. What types of images would you choose? That sin has broken everything, has marred how we view the world. How would you communicate that visually? That Jesus redeems and restores and that one day every sad thing will come untrue. We will shed no more tears. We will be in perfect relationship with God. The sky's the limit, so to speak. There are promises here. There are promises that we can cling to. It's not just let's be creative in how we think about God just because but God's word has promises that we can rely on, that we can cling to, like the psalmist describes. He says that if we, if we follow and obey and meditate upon God's word, we will be blessed. It's a straightforward promise. That's how we started the book of Psalms in Psalm chapter 1, and that's how Psalm 119 begins. We will not be put to shame. It will help us to keep our way pure. We might not sin against God if we follow his commandments. His word will provide counsel for us. God will answer us according to his word. We can answer those who taunt or mock us. We will find comfort in the midst of affliction. God says his word is life-giving. We will walk in wide open spaces. He will make us wide. He will make us wise. He will increase our understanding. His word will be a lamp and a light to guide us. His word is our hiding place, our shield. His word will provide delight and peace. For some of us that would say we have a relationship with God, we can think back to that time when we treasured God's word like this. We know that it gives life. We've been in that place. Even if you haven't yet, we've seen it on TV, right? The main character in the show is struggling and he sees the Bible and reads the verse, whatever, random Bible verse, and finds inspiration and hope. That's why everyone's grandma has Psalm 23 somewhere on some old picture in their house, right? We know that God's word is true. We feel it. And for some of us who have questions there's lots of space. There's, there are brilliant people here that would love to chat with you about those questions about God's word. But we see these promises in his word. And some of us have experienced how helpful those promises can be in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of pain. Many of us have been to funerals where we've heard the comforting words of Psalm 23 that the Lord 
is our shepherd. We take heart in the fact that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We resonate with these words. So what if, what if this psalm is actually true in real life for us? So I'm going to read some chunks of this psalm. And I want you to think about different aspects of your life. What if this accurately described you? What would change in your life? What would have to change so that this could accurately describe you? So let's think about this. Think of a time maybe now where you feel stress, anxiety, depression. What if this was accurate about you? Psalm 119, 145 through 152 says, With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near to persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Consider if, if Psalm 119 verses 97 through 104 accurately described our perspective on life, our, our worldview, the lens through which we see things. It says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, your through your precepts I get understanding, Therefore, I hate every false way. Uh, imagine how your life would change. Your family, your RC, your church. Uh, imagine what a city full of people who live like this could do. There could be great impacts. Let, let's look at a couple more. So, I need to be honest with you guys. If you've watched the news over the last like month and a half, there's a ton of stuff going on. Um, really hard things, really sad things, crazy things if you followed the election at all. And I'm not here to make any type of political statement. Uh, I think the most accurate description I've heard is that um, Wayne, who's uh, an elder at Redemption Alhambra, said it at Tempe last week. He said, this election is like alien versus predator. Whoever wins, we lose. And I thought that was kind of hilarious. But in the midst of all of this, uh, I find myself being drawn to Facebook and like news apps. And I'm like, I think I'm getting addicted to the news. And I don't think that's a good thing, right? Like, I, I think it's a really good prayer guide, but I think it's a horrible pastime. And so what if, what if in the midst of chaotic times, 
instead of turning to Facebook or Twitter or CNN or Fox News or whatever your preferred news source, we, we, we instead looked like something like this, uh, verses 33 through 40. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Let me repeat that. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Finally, let's end with this. Imagine if our life goals, the things that we pursue wholeheartedly, that we'll take an extra couple minutes away from family time or personal time in order to pursue those things, those things in which we find our identity, sounded more like Psalm 119 verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Will you guys pray with me? God, we, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the accessibility of your word. Thank you for the Bibles that we have laying around, for the apps on our phones. We thank you that scripture is always at our fingertips, God. God, we ask that you would incline our hearts towards you, that you would make us a people who hunger and thirst after your word, that you would make us a people who are guided by what you say. God, give us the eyes to see your world clearly through the lens of your gospel. God, I pray that you would well up within us um, mouths that water after your word. God, that our stomachs would grumble as we long to read your word more. God, that it wouldn't be a burden, that it wouldn't be a task, God, but that it would be something that truly does give us life, something that gives us hope, something that gives us clarity in the midst of chaos, God. We pray that you would increase our appetite for your words so that we could in turn, in turn share your goodness with those around us, God. We thank you for your goodness. We love you, Jesus. Please help us to love you more, help us to love each other more, and help us to love our communities more. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.